Thanks, thanks, Henrik, and thanks, team, for leading us in worship so far today. It's always a joy to gather together, as I said earlier, and uh, last week we kicked off a sermon series entitled, All the Things God Cares About, wondering together, how does God want to direct our steps? One of the things that we know and celebrate as Christians and as Christians in the Reformed tradition is that God cares about everything. And so whenever we come to worship, when we come to our work, our relationships, uh, to any part of our lives, we can wonder not just does God care about this, but how does God care about this? Last week as we started this series, we looked at the first half of the, of the story of Joseph in Genesis 37 to 41. Joseph grew up as the favorite son of Jacob or Israel. He was hated by all his brothers because his dad treated him special. And so his brothers sold him into slavery where he found a good home to work in, but was betrayed by the woman of the house there and sent to jail. Like all of our stories, the story of Joseph has lots of ups and downs. But again and again, Genesis tells us that God was with Joseph. And last week I encouraged you that God is with you too, that he is with each of you and each of us. In the ups and downs of your life, God is with you. And so last week I challenged us, challenged you, if we could commit to one place to start asking, how does God want to show himself to me here? What does God want to teach me in this situation? How does he want me to act? In other words, I challenge you in each and every situation to seek God's presence and God's leading. This morning, we're picking up the story of Joseph and looking ahead uh, to the, a little bit of the story of Jesus as well. Even in prison, God was with Joseph. God gave Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, troubling dreams. And in many places in the world still today, dreams, some dreams, are recognized and valued as gifts from God. All this, uh, this was one of those special dreams that showed something about the present and the future. And Pharaoh kept having this dream, and eventually Joseph was brought out of jail to interpret Pharaoh's dream. Because God was with Joseph, God gave him the right interpretation of the dream, which was that there'll be seven years of bumper crops and lots of good harvest, and then seven years of famine in the land. And not just in Egypt, where Joseph was, but the whole region, the whole world around there. Because the Egyptians and the Israelites and so many other peoples viewed dreams as important and their interpretations as important, the king put Joseph in charge of taking care of his land and preparing for those seven years of famine. Sometimes we think of the story of Joseph as being a sort of rags-to-riches story, but really, the biblical arc is one from pride to slavery to jail to famine, and then finally being redeemed, being delivered. So we're going to read just a few verses from Genesis 41 to verse 56 to 42, verse 2, just right in the middle of this story of Genesis. So this is the, the Joseph saw the dream, and he interpreted it. Or Joseph heard the dream, he interpreted it, 
And then Joseph's interpretation came true. That seven years of good harvest happened, and then seven years of famine happened. And uh, the author of Genesis tells us that when the famine had spread over the whole country, Joseph opened all the storehouses, all the preparation he had done, and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe throughout Egypt. And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Now, when Jacob, Joseph's father, all the way in another country, learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us that we may live and not die. These three verses right in the middle of this story set up how God will work his redemption. How God will reunite Joseph and his brothers and his family in the midst of a worldwide famine, but also how God used Joseph and will use Joseph to save the world uh, at that time from hunger, from famine, and even from starvation, the famine that leads to death. We might not think of it, you might not have heard this before, but famine in the Old Testament is a pretty, and in the rest of the Bible, actually the New Testament as well, famine is a pretty common theme. Famine in the Old Testament was often, if not always, a sign that God was far away. Sometimes it was God's judgment. Other times it was a picture of people who were living apart from God and trying to make it in their own strength. Famine and the physical hunger that comes along with it always accompanied other things that we are familiar with today. Most of us don't know hunger in any prolonged sense. But we might be familiar with inflation, rising prices that go along with hunger, bad attitudes and infighting among family members, betrayal, in broader society. All these things we see in Joseph's story. If we read Genesis 41 all the way to 46 or 47. And we see them all throughout the Old Testament as well. Joseph's story about famine and hunger leading to death might feel like it belongs on the other side of the world. It might feel separated from us the way that the war and hunger in Ukraine or war and hunger in Gaza seems very real, but also very far. But famine is a lot more than just an empty stomach. Famine includes death, which Joseph or Jacob mentions to his sons right at the end of our text. Go get some food, otherwise we're going to die. But it's about more than that too. Famine is about not just death, but the death of sons and daughters, the death, the end of one of the means by which God blesses his people. For the Israelites, whose entire life was connected to the land, famine was a death of productivity, a death of economy, a death of purpose. You can't have an economy when you can't have purpose when the land that grows food doesn't grow anything. Famine was even a death of hope. Think about famine in those terms as they apply to your own life. 
flagging productivity, a floundering economy, a lack of clear purpose, big threats to hope. I want to suggest to you this morning that we also live in a time of famine. It's not a famine for food or technology. It's not a famine for money, not in the West, or not even privilege or power. In our days of panic and fear and exhaustion, we face a spiritual famine. This is one of the times that the Lord saw coming and spoke through the prophet Amos in Amos chapter 8. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine throughout the land. Not a famine of food or thirst for water, but a famine for hearing the word of the Lord. A famine for hearing the word of the Lord. Amos says people will stagger from sea to sea and wander in every direction, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. I didn't prepare to say this. This isn't in the notes for those of you following along, but a famine for hearing the word of the Lord might sound to our Western ears or our English-speaking ears like people need to come and and, uh, hear me talk or more importantly hear this book read. But in the Hebrew language, that word hearing is about a whole lot more than just sound going into your ears. The Hebrew word there is shema, and it means not just to hear, but also to listen, to pay attention. It means to understand, to internalize, and to process, and it also means to act. A famine for hearing the word of the Lord is not just about what goes into our ears, but what fills our hearts and what motivates and directs and guides our actions. You see, Scripture always paints a picture of God's Word as the thing that gives us life. And so a famine for hearing the Word of the Lord is not just an individual experience, not just me going hungry. It's a collective experience. In our days of spiritual famine, there's constant pressure for leaders in any and every field to try to lead and meet that need of people hungering and thirsting for something that they have not and cannot find. If you're a leader in your family, if you're a leader in a business, if you're a leader in any kind of community, then you know that when there is great hunger and great need, people will come streaming to you. They will take everything and anything that you have to offer, and if you're not careful, you, will, you yourself will wither and dry up. You'll have nothing left to give. Think again about famine in those terms of flagging productivity, floundering economy, a lack of clear purpose, massive threats to hope. Whatever the specific instances of your circumstances, Unless you can first be filled up, unless you can first receive care for yourself, you will not be able to care for others and lead others. Amos talks about this spiritual famine, this hunger for hearing and internalizing and understanding and acting on the word of the Lord, saying that people will be searching for that, but they won't find it. Why won't people find it? 
As Pastor Harrison and I talked about this sermon and prepared for this Sunday, that was the question that he asked. Why wouldn't people find God's Word? I thought it was such a good question. When people are looking for something life-giving, when they're looking for the bread of God from heaven, the living water, when they're looking for the Lamb who brings life, why wouldn't they find it? Well, we won't find and hold on to God's Word if we're seeking to use God's Word for our own selfish or worldly priorities. And we won't find and hold on to God's Word if we're also trying to hold on to many other things or every other thing as well. Let's think about this famine, this hunger, and God's response to it in the, in the New Testament by looking at Jesus. Right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 4, Satan comes and tempts Jesus where? In the wilderness, where there is great hunger, where nothing grows. And Satan tempts Jesus with common human needs. Satan is always watching as much as he can and always tempting people, and God's people are no exception. Satan is clever. He knows how people work, and so he tempts Jesus with food and with physical needs. He tempts him with using God's power for his own personal benefit. And lastly, he tempts Jesus by trying to get Jesus to accrue or gather power and authority for himself, specifically in worldly terms. That's my introduction, and now we want to again open up God's Word and read Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 15, and this went out in the email as Luke chapter 5, so I know those of, some of you are preparing, uh, and I apologize for the typo, but we're going to look at Luke chapter 4. <clears throat> Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was, the Greek word is, he was famined. He was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. And so the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority, all their splendor and glory. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then third, the devil led Jesus to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And so when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an an opportune time. Then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So far, the reading of God's word. This, again, is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. 
Jesus has set his priorities and begun his ministry. It's beginning to succeed, and and we'll see in the coming chapters, if you read them, that Jesus pulls back from the crowds and again and again refocuses on God's priorities. But I wonder how many of us, how many of you, when you're setting your priorities, when you make your New Year's resolutions, how many of you have these priorities? Some priority about your physical or, or uh, your physical health or your f- changes to your food or your diet. Some priority about uh, your personal benefit, doing good for yourself or to yourself or accruing power or authority for yourself. You want to be richer or stronger or more well-known or, or have more clout. These are the temptations that the devil gives Jesus. If these are your priorities, then at best, they're human priorities, not God's priorities. In all cases, in all these three cases, Jesus shows us clearly heaven's priorities. We said already that famine is about being far from God or being removed from God's blessing. That's why in all throughout the Bible, in the Old and New Testament, when people run from God, they run to the wilderness, to the place where nothing grows, to the desert where there is nothing. In Scripture, if famine is being removed from God, then God's Word is what fills us. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 when he's tempted. He says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus said that the word of God sustained him, that hearing the word of God, listening to it, internalizing it, knowing it, and putting it into practice sustained him. Through the word of God, God still sustains humanity. Jesus doesn't just speak God's word for other people to hear. Jesus is God's word. The Bible tells us that Jesus didn't come into this world to condemn the world, but to save it. Here in Luke chapter 4, the verses that we read, and all throughout the New Testament, we see that heaven's priority is to save the world. If we call ourselves Christians, is our, are our lives aligned to heaven's priority? Heaven's priority, again, is saving and transforming the world. And before we get ahead of ourselves, we need to recognize that that begins with you. Before you jump to or assume that God wants to use you to save and to transform his world, or that he wants to use me, we need to slow down and focus. God cannot use you or me to save and transform his world until and unless we are transformed by God. God can't use us to transform others until or unless our lives are shaped by the priorities of the kingdom of God and the priorities of King Jesus. So often we set what we think and what seem to us to be good and important priorities and things that we think and expect will help other people. But we start from our own priorities without stopping, pausing, and reflecting on what God has 
for us and what God intends for us in a given area of our lives. In Luke 4, Jesus is starting something new. He's preparing for his ministry. But he knows that he can't succeed in human power or human terms. And so Jesus goes to the wilderness. The early church fathers said that the wilderness was God's gift to people. Because in the wilderness, there is nothing we can do. There's nothing we can create. There is nothing we can use. So when we go to the wilderness, we find we must rely on God or we will die. The wilderness is God's gift to his people. Jesus goes to the wilderness to ensure that his life and his priorities are shaped and aligned by God's and by heaven's. Maybe again this new year you have some priority. You want to start a business or improve your business. You want to launch an app. You want to get famous online. You want to further your career. You want to take care of your personal needs or strengths. You want to find something that will work for your benefit. Gather power or authority for yourself. Brothers and sisters, Jesus didn't do it this way. Jesus was happy to preach a good sermon and share a powerful message about the kingdom of God, the word of God. And as we read, the crowds loved him. The crowds gathered and listened to him. But Jesus always put most of his energy in two places. First, on his relationship with his father, with God. And second, on the few, his disciples. The few who he knew and loved and served most intimately. The crowds, of course, are always interested in Jesus' teaching. The crowds want to keep Jesus around. But Jesus is not interested in worldly fame or worldly power. Jesus is interested in transformation. The transformation of his life such that his life becomes, or is and remains, perfectly aligned to God's will and the transformation of his disciples so that their lives become perfectly and fully shaped by God and perfectly aligned to God's will. Jesus found power. Jesus found or connected to God's power and connected to God's goodness through yielding himself, his desires, and his personal power to God. And Jesus did it as a way, as the way, the truth, and the life. As a model and the model for his disciples to follow. So as the people of Jesus, the followers of Jesus living today, we can trust that Jesus, the word of God, will empower and transform your life too. But that transformation that Jesus brings, the transformation of the kingdom of God that comes in the power of God isn't an overnight transformation. It's not a miracle pill. It's not a quick surgery. It's not a single prayer that you pray and then it's done. The transformation that Jesus brings comes from regular and repeated exposure and regular and repeated realignment of your life and my life to the word of God. Not just hearing, 
but listening and knowing, internalizing, and acting. If we are, if this year or this month or any time, if we are too busy with our own lives and our own priorities, we will never stop to wonder in awe of God. But John Van Sloten says in his book, God Speaks Science, beauty and wonder are doors that God uses to get our attention and draw us deeper. It's wonder and amazement of God that helps to set our priorities. The songs we sang this morning and the songs we will sing after the message are all geared toward wonder and awe and amazement of God. But so often we live our lives, as it were, with our heads down, focused on our own uh, priorities, our own plans, what is immediately in front of us. And if and when we do that, we will not be ready for the big and next things to come. If we focus on what we want and what we planned and what we think needs to happen, we won't be ready. But if we focus on God, if we seek Him first, it's as if our eyes are lifted up and we can not only see the landscape that is in front of us, but we can also see with the eyes of God, or God gives us eyes to see. God in heaven directs our paths with His wisdom, with His power, as He prepares for us, or as He prepares us for all that is ahead. God in heaven can see the things that we cannot see. He can prepare us for things that we do not know are coming. This is why Jesus says, Seek first God's kingdom. Seek first His righteousness. And all of these other things will be given to you as well. Russell Moore, a well-known, prominent Christian, especially in the southern U.S., says that seeking first all these things that Jesus promised would be given to us as well after we sought his kingdom, seeking first all these other things has drained the, king, the Christian message of its grandeur. Too many believers, he says, have rationalized our plan to seek first other things by saying that God is most glorified when Christians hold a commanding heights of society. But this is exactly backwards. A Christian witness is always best when not from a position of power as defined by the outside world. That's the end of the quote from Russell Moore. Jesus shows his disciples then and now that Christians don't need worldly power. Christians don't need worldly success. God has it. God has all the power in the world. God has all the glory, whether we choose to acknowledge it or not. God will use his power to judge and realign the world when the time is right. But we can't chase both worldly success and Jesus. We can't chase both worldly, worldly priorities and Jesus. If Jesus had human priorities, Jesus would have immediately taken a position of power that either that Satan had given him or that someone else had given him. Jesus would have been able to judge and direct and reshape all the kingdoms of the world in human power. 
And as Christians, we believe, and Scripture teaches us clearly, that the judgment will happen. At the end of all things, God will come to judge the living and the dead. But praise God that he waits as long as possible to use that power out of love for his world so that as many as possible would come to know him and enjoy his kingdom, his power, and his glory. If we want to pursue heavenly priorities and to leave and set our earthly priorities aside this year, if we want to see heaven's priorities in many different areas of our lives, then we need not just today, but every day to stand in awe of God. Brothers and sisters, as we start this year together, let us stand in awe of God who brings life into a world of famine and drought and emptiness. God who gives wisdom to Joseph. God who gives discipline to his disciples. God who is so powerful as to raise Jesus from the dead and lift him up to the right hand of God in heaven. God who gave his Holy Spirit and delivers all God's people who call on his name. God who fills up the hungry and who delivers those who are in need. God who protects the widow and the orphan who gives us everything we have. Let us never stop, brothers and sisters, being in awe of this God. And as we come to him, in prayer, in just a moment, I want to encourage you and challenge you to, to wonder at your own life. To look not just for your personal priorities, maybe the things that you've written down or the priorities that you have in your mind already, but to look to your life as it is and to stand in awe of who God is and how he already is with you. When we stand in awe of God, we can ask him that he will give us eyes to see his priority and his way for us. Let's come to him in prayer. God, we've sung so many beautiful words this morning. We had the chance to read from two different parts, or, and more than that, from your word that tell us of your glory, your power, your might, your care, your love, your goodness, even your justice. God, this morning as we gather for worship, we are in awe of you. As we look into the quiet spots within our own hearts, God, we pray that you would not just remind us of the plans that we have, but show us the plans that you have. Show us the ways in which you have already delivered us, filled us, cared for us, provided for all we need. Show us the ways you have already given us success, already set us up in comfort, in peace, in, in, in wholeness. God, when we stand in awe of who you are, of your goodness, your power, and your glory, give us faith that we might trust you to continue to lead us in the, in the year to come. And give us humility, whatever area it is where we need to start first, that we might not only see your leading, but follow and submit to it as well. 
All these things we pray, Lord, not because we are worthy of it, but because of your great love shown us in Jesus, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen.